Why renter's insurance? Because pipes. State Farm renter's insurance covers stuff landlords don't, like furniture that gets drenched by a broken pipe. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. You're listening to Insight, so obviously you enjoy listening to true crime podcasts. Well, I have a new true crime podcast for you, and it's called PD Stories. PD Stories features Tom Morris Jr. from America's Most Wanted and A&E Live, PD. And he interviews cops from all different areas of America, from rural counties of Long Island to the Vegas Strip, officers from NYPD, bomb and canine squads, undercover narcotics officers and gang units. Hear hilarious and haunting tales from the streets. PD Stories is available now wherever you listen to podcasts. The first few episodes of PD Stories covers topics like how and why gangs migrated to Tulsa, bringing down major mob bosses and an interview with an FBI profiler. Find PD Stories right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play or wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to subscribe. Again, that's PD Stories. In 1965, four men disappeared from their hometown in Sweden. This disappearance is the only long-term mass disappearance in Swedish history. The same day, a bank heist was foiled when the three robbers were caught almost immediately. Are the missing men and the robbery connected? And if so, how? If not, then where did the men go and why? Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing well. How are you going? I'm doing really well, but we have to start the show with a few announcements. We try not to take more than a minute to get the story to you, but we've got a few announcements to make, so hang in there for a second. I'll start with the biggest announcement. Our release schedule is changing in a pretty big way. Weekly year-round is just outside of what we can do for the foreseeable future. The reasons are too numerous to get into, but don't worry, we're fine, our kids are fine, our families are fine. We just need to scale back. After discussing taking the summer off entirely, we decided instead to release episodes, but with some short breaks. The schedule is a little random for the next two months, so we will publish it on the website. Stay subscribed and follow us on social media so you don't miss our releases. In September, we will be back with a new schedule of three episodes in a row, followed by a week off rinse and repeat. I personally hate when my shows aren't releasing as much content because I'm a mass consumer of podcasts. So know that we wouldn't be doing this if there was any other way for us to do it. We've explored a few alternatives. These random weeks off, honestly, are what are going to make it possible for us to keep the show going. I do have some better news. July 7th at noon, I'll be in Tulsa at the Generation Y meetup. If you're going, let me know because I'm going to bring something for Insight fans. Also, July 22nd, I'll be at the Canadian True Crime Podcast Live Show in Toronto. Tickets are only $10 for a live show that includes Dark Topic, Canadian True Crime, The Trail One Cold, The Nighttime Podcast, Already Gone, and me. There will also be a meet and greet after with those podcasters, plus more. I know for sure Dark Poutine's going to be there. 
I've heard others will be there as well. I'll put a link in our show notes for where you can get tickets. Before we even get started on this case, we need to do a few thank yous and a bit of a disclaimer. So first, a huge thank you to Ulva. She is a mod in our Facebook group. She did the legwork on this one since the vast majority of the articles were in Swedish. She helped translate and curate those, and we are eternally grateful. We also want to say a thank you to Skaraborg2. We've actually never met this person, but that's the online handle for someone who is really dedicated to the case and helped provide information. Without them, we wouldn't have enough information to even begin to cover this case. With that said, all of the mispronunciations, because they've already happened, and any mistakes are our own. It's difficult to work on a case this way. It's so outside of our usual research methods that it was a bit of a challenge. But we're always excited to reach outside of the countries we usually cover, meaning predominantly English-speaking ones, to get a case that's just something we've never heard before. Let's first cover information on the three men believed to have gone missing together. All three men lived and worked in Gothenburg, which is a large port city in Sweden. Jan Dahl was 21 years old when the men went missing. His name is the one the disappearance is known collectively under, and it isn't clear to me why. Perhaps it's because it was his car they went missing in. Reports vary a bit about whether the car was actually his or his brother's, but it seems likely that he bought it from his brother even if he didn't register it under his name. The car was a 1956 Volvo PV444 in either pigeon grey or midnight blue. Both are reported, but midnight blue seems to be the more accepted colour. He was the middle of five boys, with his two older brothers off on their own, and Jan, his mother, and two younger brothers, they lived together in the same house. He's been described as calm but happy. He tended towards the quiet side and had worked on the sea when he was a teenager. He was well-liked, but had gotten into minor scrapes with the law. Even though he lived at home, Jan was an adult and he worked for a living so he was free to come and go from the house as he wished. His mother didn't always know where he was going or why. He worked at the shipyards cleaning the tanks of the ships, which was hard and dirty work. He didn't have a wife or children tying him to the area, but he did have a girlfriend who lived about three hours away. Shell R.K. Johansson was a friend of Jan's. He was quite a few years younger. He was only 16, but they had lived in the same neighborhood for most of Shell R.K.'s life and both worked in the shipyards together. His family moved away from the neighborhood in early 1965, and he initially stayed in the old apartment with one of his brothers. Sometime in late May or early June of the same year, he and his brother had some type of falling out, and after his mother talked with his brother, it was decided that he would move back in with his mother. His plan was to eventually move in with his girlfriend. Even though they were quite young, they had a newborn son together. He was artistic and he was also well-liked, but he was anxious and prone to anger. 
He had a fair-sized group of friends, but he was also described as a lone wolf who often would go do things by himself. Earlier that same summer that he disappeared, Sherlock Hay had two run-ins with the police. One for disturbing the peace while drunk, and the other was for public drunkenness. After one of these arrests, he returned home with bruises, claiming the police had beaten him up. And the third man was another friend of these two. Guy Carlson was about 22 years old, and he had a rough upbringing. He had been taken into foster care when he was little, but he did eventually return to his family. Sweden has a program that's called Summer Families, where children from urban areas, generally disadvantaged children, as Guy was, would be sent to spend the summer with either a farming family or perhaps a free or low-cost summer camp. And the idea behind this program was to give the children strong role models, let them have new experiences that they wouldn't have living in the city and in the urban core, and it also would give their parents some respite. Knowing that raising children when you're barely making ends meet is incredibly stressful, and it can lead to the breakdown of the family and abusive behaviors. The program still exists, but it's used much less frequently now as social services has turned more towards this idea of keeping family units intact and having the families do things together during the summer rather than separating parents from children. Guy spent several summers with a couple on a farm through this program, and the couple was interested in adopting him. But Guy never wanted to stay there year-round. He always wanted to go back to Gothenburg. Guy worked odd jobs, including painting and shipyard work. He would take work as it came, though he was unemployed at the time he disappeared. Unlike the other two who lived with their families, Guy lived on his own and he was engaged. Guy abused alcohol and had a drunk driving incident around six or seven weeks before he went missing. Then just two weeks before he went missing, he and a friend broke in somewhere. I haven't seen it specified if it was a home or a business. His friend was taken into custody, but he was not. It was at one point reported that Guy had no family to speak of, but he actually did have a sister and stepmother who he was in weekly contact with. Jan was seen by his family leaving home on July 28, 1965. When he left, he took an extra pair of pants with him, but he left his seaman's book and passport at home and went to work. He did not return home that evening, though. He had an unclaimed paycheck that he never picked up. There is also a report that he told his mother that he and some friends had plans to go camping. Shelley Kay was last seen by his family the following day, July 29, 1965. There are varied statements on what he did that morning, which can be largely chalked up to faulty memory or even misreporting. He was supposed to go to work that morning, and one report said he refused to go. Another said he made like he was going to go to work, but never made it. His work shoes were still at home, so it didn't seem like he intended on going to work and that being his destination. He also told his family that he and some friends were planning a camping trip coming up, 
but it wasn't as though he told them that was where he was going that day. Just that he had mentioned it leading up to his disappearance that a camping trip was being planned. Shalekay also asked to borrow money from his sister days before he went missing, but she didn't have any to give him. He had about 100 krona with him when he left, which is 11 US dollars or 15 Australian dollars. And according to Google, it's roughly 10 euros. He didn't have a passport, and it's believed he took his house key with him, which would make you think he planned on coming back. As for Guy, he reported to the unemployment office first thing in the morning on either July 28th or 29th. It's not clear which day it was. While he was outside the building smoking, a red truck pulled up and the driver said he wanted help. He specifically indicated that he wanted Guy to be the one who helped him. There were a couple people out there smoking with him. Guy left in the truck with this man who was reported to be in his 40s or 50s. Guy didn't have a passport and it's not known if he had any money on him. All three of the men reportedly regularly had more money on them than would be expected for their employment status, with the implication being that they had some illicit way of gaining money. So it's unclear, even with the report that Shalakay had a certain amount of money on him, whether or not that really is the only money the men had. A little after 3 p.m. on July 29th, all three men were seen together at Cafe Marden, and witnesses saw the three men leave together in Jan's Volvo. None of the men had a driver's license, but they had been seen previously driving around with one of the three driving. They kind of took turns. There was some joke between them that Jan was a terrible driver, so Guy would usually drive. Jan's younger brother, who was 18 at the time, reported seeing the three together in the car that same day, but they hadn't told him where they were headed. And this is the last confirmed sighting of the three men. And we're going to pause the story right here so we can hear a word from our sponsor. You heard at the top of the show that I'll be in Tulsa soon and Toronto. Because I travel a lot, I know the benefits of a great piece of luggage like Away. Away uses high quality materials while offering a much lower price compared to other brands because they cut out the middleman. All of the suitcases are made with premium German polycarbonate, unrivaled in strength and impact resistance, but it is super lightweight. If you're short like me, and you've tried to get a carry-on into an overhead bin, you know how much I appreciate how lightweight this is. Two other issues I have while traveling is overpacking and charging my devices, whether it's my phone or my Bluetooth headphones. The interior of my Away carry-on has a patent-pending compression system to help with my first issue, and a battery so I can charge my phone and headphones, and that solves my second issue. And Away offers a lifetime guarantee. If it breaks, they'll fix it. And they offer a 100-day trial. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash insight and use promo code insight during checkout. That's $20 off a suitcase at awaytravel.com slash insight using promo code insight, one word, during checkout. 
There is a fourth man in this story who also disappeared that day, but his connection to the other three is not confirmed. Hubner Lundquist was an 18-year-old student. He did not know the original three, and he really had no way to know them. The three other men were from working-class families, and Hubner came from a family of artists, and his father was a professor. Plus, he lived with his parents and twin brother in Stockholm, which is a five-hour drive from Gothenburg, so it's unlikely the men would ever cross paths. In July 1965, Hubner and his family were staying in a summer cottage just two hours south of Gothenburg. He decided on what seemed like a whim to head to an artist school in Lucille, which is about an hour and a half north of Gothenburg. And no matter how he went, either by hitchhiking or by train, he would have had to have gone through Gothenburg to get to the art school. He left behind his passport and took somewhere between 70 and 100 kroner with him. This decision to just leave would have caused some concern for his parents. Habner struggled with his mental health. From the reports, it sounds like he may have been dealing with obsessive compulsive disorder, as he's described as being extremely anxious and also very rigid about things like making his bed. It was also reported that he sometimes self-medicated with wine and other times took sedatives prescribed to him, medications like Valium. These were fairly new to the market and prescribed rather freely at times. And I know with medications like Valium, it is recommended that you don't mix with wine, so it would have had some kind of reaction to him if that's what he was doing. His parents received a postcard shortly after he left that was dated by Hubner, and it was also postmarked July 29th. An image of it is available online, but it's not super clear, and I don't read Swedish. So the online poster that we talked about at the beginning of the episode, Scaraborg 2, well-versed in the case, and they think it says, quote, Here I am now, took the 8 a.m. train to Gothenburg, hoping to hitch a ride now. Do not worry. Kiss. Hime. And Hime was his nickname. It's also been reported that it says, I'm in Gothenburg, all is well, do not worry. This is the last confirmed contact with him, and the only connection to the other men is that he went missing the same day and was last known to be in the same town. But it wasn't immediately that anyone realized that these men all went missing on the same day because they were reported missing at very different times. Jan was first reported missing by the parole board in October of 1965, so from the end of July till October. His mother wouldn't report him missing until the following March. Guy, though, wasn't reported missing for three years. About 15 months after the disappearances, a newspaper reported on the three friends disappearing and mentioned Guy, but the article noted that Guy had never been officially reported missing. His sister went to the police in 1968 to ask about the investigation, see where they were, see if they had any leads, and she found out that there was no investigation into her brother's disappearance because he hadn't been reported missing. She thought all those years that her parents had done it. She gave the police a photograph of Guy, the only one she had, and filled out the report. 
When the case went nowhere for years, she took the picture back from the police so that she could keep it. It's unclear why Guy's parents didn't report him, but it is possible it was because they assumed he just took off on his own or moved on. Jan, though, his mother said he was the type who would call if he was going to be late. So my guess is that she didn't officially report him missing for months because of something we have seen so often in other missing persons cases. Families are sometimes put off from reporting adults missing. They're told their loved ones probably just went away with friends or were off doing their own thing and they would be in touch when they wanted to be. Or it's also possible she thought that maybe he found himself in some kind of legal trouble bigger than usual and figured he was just laying low. We really don't know. But by next spring, she realised this was serious. Sheila Kay was only 16 and Hubner was 18, but with an overprotective mother who was worried on account of his mental health issues, so they were both reported missing within the week. In April of 1986, after 20 years, all of the men's inquiries were closed because of the statute of limitations. I'm unsure what this means exactly. The men would have been in their 30s or 40s, so it wasn't as though they would be presumed to be deceased. Also, different translations say their cases were shredded or shed, and I'm not sure if this means literally through a shredder or just put off in an inactive pile and stored in a basement somewhere. Hubner's parents had him declared deceased the same day his case was closed and Guy's family had him declared deceased in 1998. As far as we can tell in the research, the other two families have not and do not intend to have their loved ones declared deceased. Guy's sister has an odd story from that summer that we're not sure how it really fits or where to put it into this timeline, so we're just going to put it here. She said that she went to her brother's home that summer, probably sometime after August 10th, but it was definitely before the end of summer because she remembers it was still hot. She hadn't heard from him and wanted to check on him. A man she did not know answered the door. She said he looked like he was in his 20s. The man seemed distressed and told her that she should look for her brother at the bars. But the oddest thing about this encounter was that the man was wearing one of Guy's sweaters, and she was positive it was Guy's sweater because she's the one that had knitted that sweater for him. And then by the end of the year, someone had cleared out Guy's apartment. 44 years later, the sister identified Shella Kay as the man wearing her brother's sweater that day. She had never met him before, so she hadn't recognized him on that day, and she didn't recognize him from the little pictures that they printed in the paper over the years. But she saw a photograph that had been blown up, and she saw more detail and said that made her make the connection. This is an identification made 44 years later, so you'd be right in questioning the veracity if it was Shalake, then this means he was in the area after the men supposedly disappeared, and he was living in Guy's home and wearing his clothes. 
But I wouldn't consider this a sure thing so many years later after she had already seen Shellacay's photo a few times over the years. So this wasn't a cold identification. So I don't know. I think it's true that she saw someone in his apartment and that is suspicious. I'm not sure the identification is accurate. But this wouldn't be the only possible sighting of Shella Kay after July 29th. In 1966, a friend believes she saw him in Gothenburg, but he turned away from her when she went to talk to him. In 1972, another friend reports having talked to him in a town just three hours away from Gothenburg. There's also a sighting of him in Stockholm, which I do find interesting considering that's where Hubna come from. And a few days after the family last heard from Shellacay, they received a phone call asking if they were still looking for him and that he was at a local cafe. The caller didn't give their name. Now, his family, of course, immediately dropped everything and went to the cafe, but Shelley Kay wasn't there and no one remembered seeing him there. It appears that this call may have been a hoax. There have been more recent sightings, one allegedly made by his own sister just seven or eight years ago. She saw a man driving near Gothenburg who was a spitting image of her father and she believes that he may have been Shelley Kay. These sightings are hard to dismiss entirely because they were largely made by people who knew him. At first I thought, well, why haven't there been more sightings if he was only in the Gothenburg area or at least periodically visiting? But we are talking about a metro area here of about a million people. It isn't like this is a small hometown. Gothenburg proper is the second largest city in Sweden. We have one last break for a word from our sponsor, and then we'll talk more about what happened here. Did you spend the night tossing and turning? Sleep is so important, and the quality of your sleep affects the quality of your daily life. I have a busy day from when I get up till I go to bed at night, so those hours I spend in my bed are so important to give me the fuel I need to get through those long days If you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, you have got to try a Purple Mattress. If you're used to memory foam mattresses, this Purple Mattress is going to feel so different than anything you've experienced before. They're using a brand new material. It was developed by an actual rocket scientist. The Purple material feels unique because it's firm, so you're going to feel supported while you're sleeping. But it's also soft at the same time, so you're also going to feel really comfortable It's breathable, so it sleeps cool, which is so important for a good night's sleep. There's a 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. There is a 10-year warranty, free shipping and returns, and free in-home setup, and they'll take away your old mattress. You're going to love Purple, and right now, our listeners will get free sheets and a free mattress protector with your mattress purchase. Go to purple.com slash insight. That's purple.com slash insight, purple.com slash insight. There have been no reported sightings of Guy, as far as we can tell in the reports we have, and Hubner's family initially believed that he may have traveled to Denmark or that he may be traveling overseas. Five months after he went missing, his mother sent a message over radio waves that said a greeting to Hubner Lundquist 
who is on a boat somewhere, from his mother, get in touch. They never heard from him, though there were two possible sightings on ships in both Singapore and Australia. There is only one reported sighting of Jan that I could find, and that was in Holland from 1966. No one knows what happened to the four men, but even more, no one knows if the disappearances are even connected. Now, it seems incredibly unlikely that the three men who knew each other and were seen together, their disappearances weren't connected. That's unlikely. There is a popular theory on discussion boards, and from what I can tell through the translations, the theories that the men were together and then somehow Guy was killed. Then the other two went underground and in part stayed in his apartment. It's unknown if they killed Guy or if they were all involved in some illegal dealings and Guy was killed in the process by someone else and the other two disappeared. This theory does rely on Guy's sister's report that Shella Kay was the man she saw at his apartment after he disappeared. And then for Hubner, how he fits in this... He mentioned in his postcard that he planned on hitchhiking from Gothenburg, and then he was never heard from again. Perhaps the three men picked him up, hitching a ride, and they disappeared together. It's unlikely Hubner would have gone through with some criminal activities with men he barely met, but maybe he was the mark. Perhaps they planned to rob him and something went wrong. I read another theory that was similar to that in that they picked up Hubner either wanting to buy drugs from him or him wanting to buy drugs from the three men and then something happened and they accidentally killed Hubner and then they went into hiding. But this is assuming the worst of the three men. A theory Jan's mother had was that they went into the water somewhere. It's important to note that Jan's car also went missing and has never been found. They have the identification numbers from various parts of the car recorded, and the car as a whole, or even in pieces, has never surfaced. The weather the day the men disappeared was terrible. It rained over an inch, or 25 millimetres, in just 24 hours. It wasn't a warm summer rain either. It was only in the mid to upper 50s, or 12 to 15 degrees Celsius. It would have been terrible weather for a camping trip, so it seems baffling that the men would have gone in the first place. But Jan's mother believes that the men may have been driving around, perhaps heading to camp thinking that it would dry out early enough for them to enjoy the trip, but then drove or slid off the road in the dark and ended up somewhere in the water. Gothenburg is on the Kattegat, the sea between Denmark and Sweden and they may have driven along this coast to get where they had planned on camping. Now, there are a few places I can see on Google Maps where the car could have drove off, and that's assuming they didn't end up lost and even closer to the deeper coastal area. There is another major incident that happened in Gothenburg on July 29th that may hold the key. Around 2 p.m. that day, two armed men entered a bank and began firing into the ceiling and demanding money, while a third man guarded the door. At least one of the men was dressed as a woman, though it's also been said that all three were, and they wore long blonde wigs, and this was their disguise. Obviously, most of the people in the bank took cover when the gunfire started. One bank customer, though, tried to take one of the men down, 
in the struggle, the gunman fired his gun into his own leg. In spite of being wounded, the men did manage to get some money before they fled. Their escape plan was to jump into the river and swim to a getaway boat nearby with the money. They had even worn wetsuits under their disguises for this. As they were running, they were being chased by bank employees, and the employees were throwing rocks at the men. But they had to back off when the men started shooting again because guns versus rocks. The man who had shot himself wasn't able to swim to the boat, and he was caught in the river, kind of treading water. Eventually, all three men were caught, though it's believed by many that these were just the faces of the robbery, and there was a larger number of people behind them planning it. With the robbery being the same exact day the men went missing, could these cases be connected? Perhaps the three men were somehow involved in the planning or execution of the robbery, and they took off when it went south. Others believe that they may have known something they weren't supposed to know. Another idea is that they saw the men getting ready for the robbery and were killed because they were witnesses. But this isn't likely if the timeline we've seen reported is true. The robbery happened around 2 p.m., but the three men were seen together and alive at 3 p.m. Also, the three men who robbed the bank were all older Hungarian men. In the 1950s, around 200,000 Hungarians fled their country. There was a lot of political unrest that was caused by the Soviet occupation, and some of these refugees settled in Sweden. So we're trying to link three young Swedish men who had petty criminal charges at worst with older political refugees who were trying to pull off an armed bank heist. And making this connection has not been an easy task. So far in 50 years, no one has been able to do it. Firstly, I don't think these two cases are connected at all. But I can't help but wonder if the bank robbers managed to get away, would the police have suspected that the three men who disappeared were connected? And considering it all happened on the same day, I have read this was part of the robbers' plan, but really they had no way of knowing because of the original three men not being reported missing right away. I do love the response from the bank tellers, though, throwing rocks at people with guns. I have a hard time believing that the robbery and the disappearances are connected, but then it's such a huge coincidence, I have a hard time believing they're not connected. So I am, after doing this research and thinking about this and writing an entire script on it, I still don't know how I feel about whether or not there's a connection. It would be a really big coincidence that four men went missing from the same town on the same day a robbery had happened. So I guess it could be possible that maybe even just Hubner was somehow connected. Maybe he witnessed something and then one of the robbers silenced him, possibly. Right. I mean, it could be connected to just one of the men. It's pretty hard to try to figure this out. Another theory is that the men just left. Gothenburg is a giant port city. It wouldn't be hard to sign onto a ship and just leave. Hubner's family believed that for a while that is exactly what he did. He didn't hitch a ride in the car, but rather on a ship. And the sightings in Singapore and Australia bolster this theory. Again, if the other three men left, it would have had to have been for a major reason, not just a petty crime. 
They were all in relationships and one had a child. All were in regular contact with their families. You wouldn't expect they could or would go over 50 years without contacting them. And the reason they went underground, it would have had to have been significant for all three of them to do this. I think if the three men that were together went underground, it would have had to been connected to the robbery and something did go south and they thought the three other men were going to turn on them. But when that didn't happen, I mean, this has been pretty widely reported, I mean, in Swedish, so they would have been able to kind of follow this throughout the last 50 years. Why didn't any of them make contact? Family members have given interviews with newspapers and media outlets, which I don't think they would have done if the men were secretly contacting them. So I do believe that these families haven't heard from them in 50 years. I think Hubner is the coincidence here. If there is one, I think he likely hitchhiked somewhere or he did get on a ship somewhere and he may have just lived a transient life for the rest of his life. I think that would make the most sense in his case. He seemed very eccentric as it was, and I think that's something he may have done. As I said, I don't think it's likely that all three men went into hiding together for this long without at least one of them sending word. We know from other missing persons cases out there that, yes, that does happen, that someone can be ashamed of something they've done or afraid of something or not really care enough about their family to contact them. But all three of them in this case, I don't think it's likely, especially not when we have people here who seem to genuinely be close to their family. I do believe that that it's possible that they did die soon after they went missing, possibly in that car accident. My money is on a car accident considering that the car has never been found. Like you said, the car remains unaccounted for. This is one of Sweden's most perplexing and enduring mysteries. In the nearly 53 years since the men went missing, the parents have died without knowing what happened to their children, and they left behind siblings who are still wondering. Shalek Hay left behind a baby. It's one of those cases that just may never be solved unless someone stumbles on the answer. If they're in the water, they happen to dredge that area of the water and they find the car. Or one of the men, if they are alive, they come forward and say what happened. But there are a large number of armchair detectives who are doing their best to bring answers to these families. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Insight Podcast, Twitter at Insightful Pod, Instagram at Insight Pod, or email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash insightpod. And a special thank you to Chesgrave Music for our new custom theme.